Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. There's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today's Monday, August the 9th, 2021. This is episode 2931 of the Survival Podcast, and today's episode is called The Fundamentals of Preparedness. That's right, today we're going to talk about the most basic fundamentals of preparedness, and I think it's time to do a show like this. I really do. Um, I think there's a there's a good reason to every once in a while, no matter how advanced you get, back up and take a look at the core of what makes what you do work, what makes it effective, and that also leads us to our why, why we're doing it. When we really understand the fundamentals of preparedness, no one has to then make a case for why we should prepare. When you analyze the fundamentals, you, you, you come to this conclusion like, this is really stupid not to do. So this will be a good episode to share with people as well today. And I have a great quote <clears throat> to lead off with on fundamentals. But this is going to be an old school <clears throat> uh, TSP episode. This is going to be like hearkening back to a lot of material we covered in 2008, 2009, that long ago. Because when we, we stick to the core fundamentals... We can't help but be successful. We'll talk about that more in just a minute. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is ButcherBox.com. You know, in a roundabout way, didn't ButcherBox end up, for a lot of you guys, being an excellent preparedness step? I mean, we brought them on because they have great grass-fed beef, pastured pork, pastured poultry, super high quality, very cost-effective. Every month or every other month, you can pause it whenever you want to. A box of meat shows up at your house. Who wouldn't want that? especially with the quality you get. But remember when uh, the supermarket shelves dried up? And remember when ButcherBox said, hey, we're not taking any new customers right now, but if you were an existing customer, you always got your box and you could just add meat to it, and it was just this extra source. So even though it's like the best quality stuff you can have shipped to your door on a monthly basis, on top of that, it's a good preparedness item as well. We've now seen that play out. And, you know, the good news is since everything kind of normalized, ButcherBox is taking new customers. But there's a lot of shortages going on right now. If you've been thinking about becoming a customer, now is probably the time to do so. And let's add to it. Um, you will be able to save $10 a month if you're an MSB member. More on that. Hold on that in a second because I'm going to tell you how stupid cheap MSB is this week in just a second. But, you know, $120 a year off as an MSB member for an MSB membership that normally costs you $50. Why are you not a ButcherBox customer already? I just don't know. Next up today, Wealth Steading Podcast with John Pugliano. We're talking about fundamentals of preparedness today. Financial preparedness is definitely something you need to get the fundamentals right with. And if you want to know the fundamentals of investing and wealth building, you want to check out the Wealth Building Podcast with John Pugliano. John has been involved with TSP one way or another since, I think, 2010. I think that's when I first met him. It was either 2010 or 2011. I met him uh, at, a, at an event in Salt Lake City. And he's been just an incredible friend to the community ever since. This is a guy that made himself a millionaire before he went out and started telling other people how to invest their money. I respect that. I respect his advice. I respect his knowledge. And I sure as hell respect the work he's done for this community for a long time. If you're not checking out the Wealth Setting Podcast, you got to do it. Check it out today at WealthSetting.com. All right. <clears throat> with that, let's dig on into this. Let's start off with a quote of the day. 
I looked for something about fundamentals, since that's what we're talking about today. And I always try to, as an analogy, when I talk about fundamentals, whether it's on this show about preparedness, um, business coaching, uh, marketing consulting, when I used to do that, anything, I always try to use sports when I talk about fundamentals. And the reason I do that is because there is a universality to this. You know, when I played football as a kid, or when I played soccer as a kid, no matter how good you got, no matter how advanced you became, when you had a bad game or a bad day or just didn't perform, you know what the coach said? We're going to work on fundamentals. And everyone went, oh. But, you know, I think one of the greatest athletes of all time was Michael Jordan. So I was wondering, what, what, Michael Jordan, did he say anything about fundamentals? Because you're talking about a guy you, you know, playing a little bit at an advanced level. Jordan once said about fundamentals, get the fundamentals down and the level of everything you do will rise. That's why we're talking about fundamentals today. Because preparedness literally is preparedness for life. That's what you're doing when you're a prepper. You know, all the Hollywood bullshit aside, all the doomsday shows aside, all the crap aside, all of the nonsense aside, all the Red Dawn fantasy bullshit aside. Preparedness is being prepared for life in a non-brittle way. So if you can get the fundamentals of life right, right, then the level of everything we do in life will rise. That's how we're coming at this today, and I, I think it's a it's a good time to kind of step back and do this. And I want to start out with something that I I did a lot in the early days. I haven't done in a long time. The ant and the grasshopper story. The end the grasshopper shows the fundamentals of preparedness are also fundamentals of the human condition. Now, when I was a little kid, and no one even used the word prepper or survivalist, we're talking the 1970s here, my grandfather, who was a first-generation immigrant from the Ukraine, who is a big part of why I know what I know about gardening, hunting, and fishing today, And a big part of the model that I tried to follow as a man as I grew up. A little kid, I'm talking seven, eight, you know, single digits here. On Sunday afternoons, I would sit on the, the, the front porch with him at his house when we were visiting during the summer. And he'd listen to this god-awful polka music on an AM radio. And every once in a while, he'd turn that crap down, and I'd sit there with him, and he'd tell me stories. And one of the favorite stories he ever told me was Ant and a Grasshopper. And he'd always talk about his garden. It was right down in the front of the, uh, the yard when he told me this story. And here's the non-Disney version, non-bullshit version, Ant and the Grasshopper story. I was told I was seven, eight, nine years old by my crusty old grandfather, who was a tough son bitch, coal miner, had coal embedded in his arm from a mine collapse. I mean, I thought this man was the toughest man in the world. I still think he's one of the toughest people I've ever known. And he said, you know, where the Ant and I have, Grasshopper goes is, The ant and the grasshopper would be out in the field every day in the summertime, just like it is now, and look at beautiful green clover and grass everywhere. And every day, the grasshopper just fiddled and farted around and played music and, and just lived a life. And he didn't worry about anything but today. And since there was enough food every day, he could just take what he needed every day, and he thought there was no sense in doing any extra work, Or putting anything up, putting anything by. And he'd look and he'd see his friend, the ant. And that ant, every day, would work 
almost all day long. Very little time to play and frolic and fart around. That ant just kept working. And the grasshopper said, Ant, you are crazy. What is wrong with you? Why do you think you need to do all this? What are you, what are you doing hiding all that stuff down in a hole for? There's enough for everybody. And the ant told the grasshopper, listen, it's not going to be like this forever. One day it's going to get very cold and very dark. And all of this green will turn brown. And then it might even get covered with snow and ice. And if you don't put anything away, you won't have anything then. And you're going to starve. And the ant said, you're, the grasshopper told the ant, you're crazy. You're an idiot. I'm not worried about any of that. Look, everything's great. And then one day the days started to get a little bit shorter. The wind started to blow a little more. And it started to get a little colder at night. And the ant tells the grasshopper, look, you're running out of time. And the, and the grasshopper says, this is the greatest weather ever. Look at it, it's beautiful. And then one day, it got really dark. And the cold northern wind came. And the snow came. And the ice came. Just like the ants said it would. And the grasshopper shivered. And he looked for something to eat. And it was all covered in snow. And he thought, I know. I'll go see my friend the ant. The ant is prepared. And the grasshopper knocked on the ant's door. And the ant said, I'm sorry, I warned you. I have to take care of my family. And the grasshopper froze to death. Now, when I was a little kid, that's the version my grandfather told me. The grasshopper froze to death. The ant didn't take the grasshopper in and feed him or anything like that because it's a real thing that would happen in the real world. Ants eat grasshoppers. If the grasshopper tries to get in the ant hole, once the cold weather comes or any time, the ants are going to kill him, chop him up, take him inside, and eat him. He just left it with he died. Instead, today, we tell children this sanitized version of the Aesop fable where the ant comes into the ant, the, and the ant takes the grasshopper in and gives him a bowl of soup and puts his feet in some hot water and warms them up and takes care of them, and then the grasshopper learns his lesson. No, that's not how it works. Grasshoppers die in the winter. It's what they do. Ants go down in the hole and they survive. That's why the story is told that way. And human beings, we can operate on a better level than either the ant or the grasshopper. The ant does not do what it does in the story for the reason the story says. The ant does not think rationally. The ant doesn't say, oh, I better do this. The ant is basically a colony of automatons. It just follows its instincts and what the chemical signature of the entire mound says you're supposed to do. And most of the ants die every year. That, that, I mean, it's a constant turnover, like a beehive. Basically, ants are bees that, thank God, can't fly. Can you imagine flying fire ants? Terrifying. But that's why the ant does it. The ant does what its instinct tells it to do and what it's adapt to do, which is the colony survives. The grasshopper is not supposed to be around in winter. It dies. It, it lives a season, and it leaves eggs behind that survive and, and propagate the next generation. We are the only species we know of. In the known universe that we, again, we know of. I don't claim to be arrogant and say we are the only ones, but the only ones we know of 
that can literally sit down and say, here's all the ways that all the different things could go wrong and all the things that we can do to mitigate them. And here's the things that are, you know, that's worth doing something about, like we could lose a job or, or there could be a storm or what have you. And here's the things that we really just, you know, you do what you can do and you just got to, like, let it go. Like, we could get hit by a comet. Okay. Right? Unless, unless you have the keys to the bunker under the mountains in Kentucky, you're dead. Right, so like there are certain things that we just need to have some f f fatalist mindset of. We could all get hit by a, a gravel truck tomorrow. We can't worry constantly, but we can prepare for the things that that are preparable for. So the way I always start that off is what I call the threat probability matrix, and, and this is interesting because I've been teaching this so long, and something finally happened that changes the way I have to teach it. It doesn't change it. And the threat probability, uh, I'm sorry, the, the threat probability matrix is that the more people affected by an event, the less likely it is that you will experience it in your lifetime. And then the pandemic came. And it was what I always said, though. It doesn't mean it can't happen. It just means when we, we start out at square zero, no preparedness whatsoever, and something wakes us up, Something makes us say, "Oh shit! Everything's not, spe you know, everything's not perfect," and it's different things for different people. I think the biggest wake-up call on the planet has been the pandemic, but I also think it's been so much a non-pandemic. It really is not a. This is not what an actual pandemic looks like. You know, when I say pandemic, I'm talking like you know, 15% death rate. Now you got a problem. Now you got a problem. Something like smallpox coming back and the vaccine no longer working would be, you know, now you got a problem. You got something that killed 50 million people. Now you got a problem. But we still had something that affected everybody. But what I've always taught is no matter how big the disaster, starting with the most likely things to happen to the individual gets you as prepared as most people are ever going to get. So if you'd followed this procedure that I've been teaching since 2008 of let's start off with, hey, we could lose a job, we could have storm damage to our home, the things that are more likely to affect just me or just me and my neighbors are most likely to happen. So let's get prepared for that first. If you did that, you were about as prepared as you could be for the pandemic anyway. So that's, that's the threat probability matrix broken down to way more simplified than, 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 than you know, Then I really use. I, I, I lay, laid it out over the years far more in depth. But just think about it that way. If it only happens to you, the odds it'll happen to you in your life are really high. And if it happens to the entire world, the odds it'll happen to you are relatively low. And I'm going to tell you, honestly, at this point, the pandemic is what the pandemic is. It is what it is. So the, 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 this goes back to working again. You know, global thermal nuclear war is less likely than you getting sacked from your job. That's all I'm saying here. Then we have what's called a disaster impact scale. This is the acknowledgement of the other side. The bigger the impact, the more, the, the more people affected, the worse the disaster is. So losing your job was bad, but the 0809 crash where millions of people lost jobs and millions of people lost their home was worse. So we need to be prepared for the most mundane, but that's how we get prepared for the most insane. That's all those two things show us. 
And there is an inverse ratio of impact and probability. The greater the impact, the lower the probability. And people can, again, try to bring the pandemic up to break that with. Okay, so the last time we had something like that was 1917 and 1921. The 100 years. 100 years has happened twice. What happened in the middle? The biggest thing that happened in the middle of that was World War II. It affected tens of millions of people, and in general, the average person was not, especially outside of Europe and the Pacific Theater and North Africa, was not really affected. You might have had some rationing. Most Americans didn't go fight the war. Millions did, but hundred, you know, was a hundred and some million Americans at that time didn't. I'm not sure what the population was. It wasn't anywhere near what it is today, but it was over a hundred million. And so you're looking at one to two percent of the country were directly involved with the fight. Most people went on with their lives. So, again, we're back to the things that affect the most people are the least likely, but have the biggest impact. All right. So what we need to do with that in mind is we need to do a threat assessment in our own world. What are the things most likely to happen or very unlikely to happen based on where I live? So what do I mean by that? Okay, you're not going to have a major impact from a hurricane in Wyoming. You're not. You just you you aren't okay. You're not going to have a blizzard in Miami. You just aren't. You might get colder weather than you expect. We could get a snap like we did last year, or this spring, I should say. But even that, you know, Miami did okay. Right. So there are certain things that we need to be more concerned with or less concerned with based on where we live, and that is a good way to put us in the right mindset of what are we preparing for and why. Because in Miami, you are likely sooner or later to deal with a hurricane. Ask anybody who lives in Miami, they'll tell you all about it. If you live in a lowland area, sooner or later you are likely to, to deal with flash floods. If you live in a low-lying area near mountains that routinely have fires, sooner or later you're likely to have a mudslide. Ask people from California. If you live in a forested area... Forest fire is a serious danger. right? So we need to kind of, I don't think we need to get too much tunnel vision because there's always the outlying thing that happens that no one expected. But we, we can begin to think about the things that will most likely need to happen if the most likely natural disasters where we live anyway happen. And then we just go break into our six survival needs and we start thinking about those six survival needs. And there are six And, you know, remember there's a big difference between needs and wants. But wants are important, too. But when I say there's six, I mean there are six things that if we do without any one of them for long enough, we run extreme risk of breaking the number one rule of survival. You know what the number one rule of survival is? Don't die. You don't eat long enough. You will die. You don't get water for long enough, which isn't very long, by the way. You will die. You go without shelter in, in certain uh, environmental conditions, you will die. Security, you can go without security your entire life because a lot of times it's provided by a third party, you're unaware of it, etc., and you can get away with not paying any attention to your security. Some people live to be 100 years old before they kick over, 
They never worry about the security. They walk through life in la-la land, and they never get hurt or injured because of it. But if you don't have security for one-tenth of one second when you need it, you are dead. Energy? Energy is a survival need. Now, that doesn't mean everybody needs an off-grid homestead or whatever, but if you think about many of the other things that we rely on, it is energy that allows it to happen. In wilderness survival, we refer to energy as fire. Fire can make a pointed stick uh, more, more uh, hardened. Fire can create tools. Fire can keep us warm. Fire can cook our food. In our, in our you know, modern world, we have energy. Energy does all of those things and more for us. It keeps us cool. It keeps us warm. So we want to think about our energy. And health and sanitation, which is the one that most people forget about, and it's because in our world of survivalism, we draw so much from wilderness survival, and the sum total of your wilderness survival, uh, is health and sanitation, is basically don't shit where you eat. I mean, you can literally, if you're lost in the woods, wander a few yards away from where you're set up, kick some leaves out of the way, take a dump, kick the leaves back over, and it will be okay. If we're not talking about building a civilization, if we're talking about a couple people, animals drop it every day all over the place, and everything ends up okay. But they don't crap where they sleep, and they don't crap where they eat. So it's really simplified. Basic first aid knowledge, and don't crap where you eat, and don't drink bad water. Well, when we move into our modern world, it's a different game. The average person generates a lot of garbage, and we generate a lot of sewage out of a family of even four. So we have to think about sanitation, and health and sanitation go hand in hand. So I break it out as its six categories. So let's go through those and talk about, and this is, again, this is the most basic fundamentals. This isn't everything. It's not designed to be everything. But if, if most Americans were to learn this mindset in, like, high school, there are so many problems that would just go away from disrupting and destroying lives. So first, first of all, we're going to start with food. I think the easiest thing you can do to develop a proper food storage program is a journal. Just write down what you eat. Write down what your kids eat. Don't make any judgment about it. Don't lie about it so you feel better about yourself. This isn't for anybody but you. If it eventually leads you to making better health decisions, good. But for the fact that you live the way you live every day and our goal with preparedness is to stay as close to that as possible when something goes wrong, write down what you eat. If it's Cheetos, write down Cheetos. And every time you consume something or the baby eats something or the daughter or the son or the grandson or the dog, every time everybody eats something, write it down in your journal. And when you find yourself going to write something down that you ate in the last week or two, put a star next to it instead of writing it down again. And every time you eat it again, put a star next to it. Right? Every time you use it, put a star next to it. You do this for one month, and you're going to realize that there's an awful lot of things that make up the fundamentals of what you eat that are pretty consistent. Most people are not eating a wide variety of food the way that they think they are. So now you're going to go through, and everything with stars on it, take a highlighter or circle it or underline it, do something to bring it up. Everything with stars on it that will store without going in the freezer, 
That is your first list of things to acquire. And then prioritize based on how much you use them and how long they last. And then the next time you go to the store, buy two instead of one of any of those items. And then start running your pantry the way the grocery stores are run. When I was a kid, one of my first real jobs, I worked in a grocery store called the Economy Grocery Store. And when new food would come in, we didn't just throw it up on the shelf. We, we would pull the stuff that's on the shelf off, and we'd put the new items in the very back and then replace the front items. It's called fronting merchandise. And it was so that the, 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 the oldest stuff would sell first because the other stuff had longer it could sit on the shelf. And, and like all the old ladies and stuff would come in and piss me off because they knew our tricks and they would dig through everything and pull the, the stuff that would last the longest out. I do that now. I used to piss me off when I was stocking shelves though, right? You're going to do the same thing at home. You want the oldest stuff in the front and the newest stuff in the back in your pantry or wherever you store your food. And you're going to do that until you have a good buildup. We call it copy canning, but it doesn't have to be in a can. And we're going to practice eating what we store and storing what we eat. This way, we're not buying any food we wouldn't buy anyway. We're just buying it a little bit quicker. And once we build up, let's say, 30, 60 days worth of something, we stop buying that unless we use it. So we got two months worth of a, a particular canned good. And we take one out, out of the front and we use it this week. Whenever we go shopping again, that goes on our... Now we just have to buy enough to replace. Once we build up, we're only in replacement mode. We go right back to the way it used to be, and we just keep rotating our stock. Do that, get to two weeks. Just start out getting to two weeks with everything on your list with a star and, and underlined or circled. Okay? And once you get to two weeks, do it again. Now you're at 30 days. Once you get to 30 days, do it again. You're at 60 days. You are good, and for most people, you don't have a lot more physical space available. It's as far as most people will ever go, and it's as far as most people ever need to go. And then we're going to add to that becoming a producer. And producer can mean a garden. Producer can mean learning how to preserve food. And then going to the, the farmer's market toward the end of the season and buying stuff when it's cheap. Buying stuff when it's on sale and learning how to convert it into storables. Uh, buying from your neighbor, bartering with your neighbor, etc., learning how to forage. When I say producer, it does not have to be a garden. So we're going to produce long-term storables, and we're going to produce ongoing consumables if we can. Simple hydroponics is an incredible way to produce a ton of nutritious vegetables and eat salad every day for almost no money when it comes down to it. But some way or another, become a producer on top of this, And then the other thing you can do is you can look at, you know, let's expand our meat. So like a, a chest freezer. I like stand-up freezers. Um, fill that up and then make sure we'll get to energy later, but have some backup power for it. Now let's move on to water. Water can be rain catch. It can be all complicated. But honest to God, the easiest way to store extra water that I've ever come up with is use soda bottles, Arizona iced tea bottles, etc. Before my grandfather, my grandfather, my father-in-law, before he passed away, um, he was addicted to Arizona iced tea. And they're just one of the great, one-gallon jug, heavy-duty plastic, designed for an acidic product. You rinse it out, 
really, really good. You fill it up with water, you put the lid on it, you stick it on the shelf. You get another one, you do it again. You get another one, you do it again. You get another one, you do it again. Let me tell you what I don't like about milk jugs for this. When I first got into this whole mindset, we had a bug-out location up in Arkansas. Some of you will remember it. We actually ended up living there for a couple of years as well. And I thought, well, you know what? The quickest way to deal with water, go to Walmart, buy a whole bunch of the milk jugs full of water, and then like the, the two-and-a-half-gallon ones that are like milk jug-like. Just go get a bunch of that, throw it in the closet. It's done. Right? So I did, and I had like 50 gallons of water stored in the closet. And one day we were up there, and the power went out, and we were on a well, so when the power's out, you ain't got no water. And I thought, well, you know, I could get the generator out and all, but it's probably a short glitch, so let's just go on with life. And I was going to make some coffee. So fired up a little gas stove outside and walked to the closet, grabbed the first one-gallon jug, picked it up, super feather light. Some point in time, it developed a hole in it, and the water leaked out of it. Oh, And fortunately, it all happened at different times, and it didn't ruin the flooring. But half the damn water had gotten some kind of pinhole in it sitting in a closet in where it made no sense that it would have happened. I don't know if maybe it froze and the power was out and I didn't know it because I wasn't there or what have you. But one way or another, half the water was gone. It didn't end up mattering very much, but it's not a good thing. It was that time when I decided no milk jugs. Milk jugs are not to be trusted. The best stuff is, again, like the Arizona iced tea, uh, like the apple juice jugs that we use for the one-gallon jugs that we use for like uh, fermentation jugs. Those are great, too, except I found with apple juice, it takes a lot to get apple flavoring out of the plastic. Like, you really got to be committed to it. Um, the other thing that works really good, two-liter or one-liter soda bottles. Those soda bottles are made for pressure and acid. I have never seen one fail. Uh, if you drop one high enough onto the ground when it's full, it'll break. That's about it. I mean, I've even seen you freeze them, and they blow up, and they don't break. So, I mean, I think that soda bottles are really one of the best as well. Uh, they're small. They're portable. They can be moved around. It's easy to deal with. You don't need a pump. And if you don't drink that shit, and I don't, that's great. I guarantee you know someone who does. Just ask them to save bottles for you. And put away at least 50 gallons of water that way. Um... I also say, if you have any space in your freezers, fill up bottles, stick them in the freezer. Serves two purposes. When it melts, it's water. You can drink it. Two, when the power goes out, it's a battery. How is it a battery? It's frozen. It's ice. You're much better with your freezer as full as you can make it. And so we even take, and I will shove my extra water bottles in the freezer at any time there's any room. And when stuff comes to the freezer... And there's, there's not enough room in the freezer, and I need to make room, then I'll take out a bottle or two and put stuff in. You want that freezer as full as possible. It's, a, it's more stable that way. And again, any water you have frozen in there, guess what? Well, you know that if that freezer, the power goes off to it, you're looking at least a day and a half before you really have to worry about anything. First thing you do when the power goes off with a freezer, the stuff full like that, Take a bunch of moving blankets and shit and throw it on top of it. And that's going to help insulate it and keep it cool as long as possible. Uh, so definitely do that. Then learn how to make water safe to drink 
if it's not from a safe-to-drink water bottle. i got to say something about those soda bottles and all. All these people that are worried about putting chlorine bleach and shit and how to purify water, if it's good, safe-to-drink water in a clean container, what you need to do to keep it preserved as water is nothing. It doesn't need any chemicals added to it. It will be fine. If you have clean water with no food for bacteria in it, you're not going to have bad water. It might be kind of flat tasting or whatever, but it's okay. It's safe. But if you do need to purify water, right, your, your best methods are filter and boil. Those are your two, and there's chemical ways as well. But we run all the water we drink through a Berkey filter. I think it just tastes better that way. We don't have the best quality water out of our well anyway. When we lived in Arkansas, man, I had water that was the uh, some of the greatest water to drink on earth. Um, so I, I, I still filtered it then because it was just a safety issue. Now I filter it for, for, for taste as well. Uh, but definitely make sure you have ways to make water pure, especially if you're doing rain catch. You have pools, anything that has an extra supply of water. Uh, and I really do think rain catchment is affordable enough that it makes sense to do. Just realize that it doesn't work year-round. You know, one of the times we dealt with water shortage at the, the height was this spring during the super freeze. Well, all of the uh, rain catch water was frozen. The pool was frozen. The tanks were frozen. Everything was frozen. So, you know, you want to make sure you're not always relying on, a, on that as well. Um, and also locate local sources of water. I, I want you to think about the fact that with a DC pump... And the battery in your, like a pickup truck, if you know a place you can throw a pump and a hose and, and containers in the back of a truck, you can go get water anytime you need to. Now, that water may not be the best water for drinking. You may need a way to purify it, et cetera, but definitely a lot of other things we need water for. That is a, a totally reliable method of getting water. You can get yourself, you know, just got to think about weight here. But something like an IBC in the back of a pickup truck and a DC pump, or uh, you could also use an AC pump with an inverter attached to your vehicle, and you can go get a couple hundred gallons of water at a time. And that can get you through a lot if you need to know how to do it and where to do it and, and try it in advance. Next up, shelter. Shelter is the one we think of the least day-to-day uh, -day as the average person. Because we generally have a place we live, and therefore we have shelter. What we need to remember is sometimes we have to leave. And, you know, I've had some debates with people in the industry about this, and they're like, I don't even worry about bugging out. Why would you worry about bugging out? All your stuff's at home. It's where you're most comfortable. It's where you're most prepared. Who would bug out? I agree until I disagree. And I disagree as soon as something like a hurricane is about to destroy your home. An evacuation order has been issued, not because the government hates you, but because they don't want you to die and they don't want it to come try to get you out. Because we have had storms since I started this show. We have had many storms in which, in certain areas, if you didn't leave, the odds that you would die were very, very high. That's an example, and there are other things that can make us have to leave. So we need to have a place to go that we can count on. And I believe two is one, one is none, three is for me, and four is even more. And, and what I mean by that is just because you've decided that you're going to go to point A doesn't mean you'll be able to. 
So you need to have at least two different places that you would bug out to. I prefer three. And they can be a friend's house or family member or something like that. They can be a bug out location. They can also be what direction you would go where you just get a hotel and ride it out for a few days. If there's a hurricane, there's a certain area that's actually in danger, and then there's an area that's just outside of that danger zone. And guess where everybody's going to want to go and where everybody's going to get a hotel? That's where they're going to get them. And people say, well, don't even worry about it because you'll never get one. Well, somebody got them. Somebody got them. You know who got them? The people who went first. I would, for that, I would know two or three hotels in a given area. I would have, in my documentation package, their phone numbers, their front desk reservations. And the minute that I think I'm going to need to bug out, if I have to rely on one of those, I'm going to make that reservation. Worst thing that's going to happen is I'm going to cancel it. Worst thing that's going to happen is I'm going to cancel it, and that's going to cost me some money. Rather have it than not have it. Right? People say, well, you know, a, a, a Visa card and hotel reservations does not make preparedness. It can. It can. It's a hell of a lot more comfortable than living in a tent outside of a U-Haul facility or in a, in a gymnasium, isn't it, if you have the resource. I'm, and I'm just saying that's one example of how to do that. I would also go a little further out and have another group of three. And maybe a little further out from that and have another group of three. And as soon as I decided to go, I would start hitting them in the order that's most convenient for me. And because most people live in denial, you'll probably be able to make that happen. And then when a storm or something comes, it causes you to bug out. The worst thing that happens is you take an unplanned vacation with kids. And then you go back home and nothing bad happened. Okay, great. If you have pets that are going to have to come, you need to make sure you've thought about that in advance, that you're going to be able to take them with you. There's plenty of hotels that allow pets. They might cost extra money or whatever, but you, you need to know in advance. You need to think this way. And you cannot ignore having a bug-out plan because there are things that can happen. When I was like 10, 11, 12 years old, somewhere in that range, one night... We heard pounding on the door of our apartment building. We opened the door. There was a Jacksonville police officer standing out there looking at us. And he said, guys, now. Got to go. And just up the street, just up the street a little bit from where we lived, was a sewage treatment plant. And they had a massive chlorine leak. And he's like, everybody out now. There was no question we were leaving. And basically, we didn't have jack shit ready. We all jumped in the car and, and drove down the road to where they told us to. And we all met our neighbors. It was like a convenience store in a big parking lot and kind of an area where people could park. It was about a mile up the road, and that's kind of where everybody sat until they got under control and they told us all to go home. That's all that happened. It could have been a lot worse. It could have been a lot worse. It could have been a lot longer. And that was something we never... I, 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 back then, I, I was a kid. Of course I didn't think about this. But we're like, oh shit, we gotta go. The the nice man in uniform did not ask us. And honestly, with what was going on, we weren't about to argue. And it ended up being no big deal. But it could have been. And that's just one example. You gotta have a bug out plan. You have to. Um now I also think you should have tarps and tools, etc., to stay home if possible. We've had quite a few tornadic storms in this area where if you drove by the next day, there's all kinds of tarps up on roofs and everything, and people were able to basically make their home livable. 
So think about the things that can go wrong because I agree with the sentiment of why would you want to bug out. I don't want to bug out. Who's going to take care of my ducks when I'm not here and my fish? Right? And yes, all my stuff is here. It's always preferable to stay home, but a lot of times thinking is what allows you to stay home. And also having a plan how you're going to get where you're going to go and how you're going to get back. I think you should have at least three places you can go and three different routes to get to each one of those places. They should all be mapped out. You can use Google Maps or whatever. Don't count on it being available when you need to leave. Print out the three different route directions. Put them in a binder and have them. And if you have a way to get to a place, you have the way to get back from a place. So that's just something that really needs to be thought out better than I think most people do. And I do think it makes sense to have a good portable shelter, whether it's a good tent, an RV, whatever it is for you, and then hope that you only ever use it for camping. But it is an option. And, I mean, people think, like, a tent sucks. Yeah, you know what sucks worse than a tent? No tent. No tent. I, I've spent a lot of time in the woods, both in civilian life and military life, and I was never, I was never like, damn, I, I wish I didn't have this tent to sleep in. Hell, I spent, I spent six months in Honduras sleeping in a GP medium with seven other dudes. We had a GP medium tent with a plywood floor, and you know what? It was a damn Taj Mahal compared to the alternative. So I do think that having a portable shelter is a good thing. And then if you're going to rely on camping, again, you need to think about where and reservations and stuff like that. I know that doesn't sound very survival-y or very preppery or whatever, but most of the things that unseat our lives are temporary, and they're relatively easy to deal with. And we prepare for those first because they're more likely, and by being prepared for them, we're as prepared as we can be for the more dangerous and less likely things. Next, security. Security, like I said during my intro into this, it is the one that people ignore the most because you can get away with it the most. It, it, you know, if you need if you need water and you don't have it in about three days, your problems are are cashed in. You die. You dehydrate. It's one of the one of the most uh, most common things that ends up people in the ER in the summertime is dehydration. It can happen very very quickly. But we're acutely aware of our need for water. We're acutely aware for it. We're acutely of our, aware of our need for food because our stomach drives so much of our behavior. So we're acutely aware of it. We're acutely aware of our need for shelter because it's cold or wet or hot outside. We're acutely aware of all of our survival needs except the one that we can do without for the least amount of time when we need it. We're not really talking about air today. How long you can survive without being able to breathe? Because that's another one that's pretty obvious. But you would think that you could go without the ability to breathe for less than time than you can go without the need, having the need for security filled. Most people, though, if you couldn't breathe for a minute, you might get a little bit panicked and all, but you're going to be okay. People go way longer than that without breathing and get resuscitated end up completely fine. As soon as you can't breathe, you know you have a problem, though. You can walk, like I said, you can walk around your entire life never worried about your security because we live in a relatively stable society. And, but people, I'm telling you, people who live in other parts of the world, they're not as clueless to this need as we tend to be in America. 
But no matter where you are, no matter how safe you think you are, if you need security, the total amount of time that you can go without it, without ending up dead in the right situation, is a fraction of a second. It is less time than you need to think, oh shit. And people die all the time due to lack of being situationally aware, due to lack of having security. And many times those people die and they don't even know they're going to die. I mean, there are it literally happens at times where it is an immediate lights out. You never knew it was coming. Somebody walks down a street, somebody walks up behind them and puts a freaking knife into their freaking liver from behind. The first time they know is when they feel it. There's people that get shot like that. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm just trying to put it in perspective that we can become so placated with this idea that it's just going to be okay. And there's a reason that we need to be that way to a degree. Like I said, you can't walk around constantly worried something terrible is going to happen. You will die from stress. Stress is the number one killer in, for human beings in the world, really. So we have a certain amount of normalcy bias that we exist in because if we literally walked around thinking about all things that can go wrong all the time, we wouldn't have any quality of life. It wouldn't be worth living. However, we do need to be situationally aware. And I think one of the first things you can do to start becoming more situationally aware is a game. Especially when you're in a vehicle with somebody else. You're driving home, each of you try to notice three things that you never noticed before. Some guy down the road has a brown car. Parked, backed in instead of parked front in. Just things like that. Just try three things that you normally wouldn't notice on a drive home or a walk home or something like that. When you get home, have a conversation if there is another person to do it with. What did you notice? Oh, I didn't notice that. Or yeah, okay. What you'll notice is if you keep doing this, real soon, you'll run out of things to notice on a normal day. And therefore, when something isn't right, you will notice it. You will notice it very quickly. It will stick out like a sore thumb. You've now become more situationally aware. You realize, like, that car's never been at my neighbor's before. I wonder why that, and it's not, you don't have to always be nosy or anything, but at least you noticed it. And as soon as you start doing that, it, this becomes habitual, and you start to do it all the time without even thinking about it. That's just one example. You need to notice things like when you pull into a parking lot, who's there and what are they doing? Because sometimes people get in really bad situations, and if they had a chance to go back, oh, I should have never ended up doing that stupid thing with that stupid person in that stupid place. I should have saw it, but they get into tunnel vision. Don't walk around with your freaking, you know, headphones on or your ear, ear things in. And if you do, put it in one ear, not two. When you're pumping gas, don't be sitting there jamming out to music and not paying attention to the guy behind you that wants your wallet when you're at the most vulnerable point when you're taking it out. Everything comes from that center. That's your core. It starts with a situational awareness. Really consider being armed. It's become easier across a greater area over the years I've done this show, than it has at any time in my adult life to be an armed citizen. But if you, if you become an armed citizen without becoming situationally aware, it almost does no good. It, it, it may actually result in being more dangerous, not less. And you might wonder how that could be. Okay, well, one of the reasons I'm so big on 
learning at least some hand-to-hand is that if you carry a gun and you're in a fight, it is a gunfight. Whether you draw the weapon or not, there's two people in conflict and there's a gun present. And I think, especially for people who have never been involved in any sort of combat training, and I'm not just talking about military or whatever, I'm talking about like just even basic martial arts, boxing, anything, where you understand what it's like to actually have another person trying to hurt you. Even if it's training and they're not trying to kill you, they are trying to, when you spar, they're trying to hurt you. You're trying to punch the guy in the face. You're trying to take the guy to jiu-jitsu. You're taking the guy to the ground, putting him in a submission. You're trying to hurt them. You might be doing it in a controlled and more safe manner, but somebody's trying to hurt you. It makes it real. And if you've never been through that, you don't understand how quickly things happen. You don't understand that you can actually be armed and that can be a disadvantage. If you go for a gun... Right, and you're close to me, and I see you go for that gun. Everything in your mind now becomes gun, and because of that, you're vulnerable to physical attacks. And I understand guns. I understand the position you're in, where you're reaching for that gun, and if I know how to control your body. You can end up with that gun shoved up in your guts, even though your hand's on it and my finger on the trigger. Just as one example of what can go wrong. So you have to have the situational awareness and the training to go with being armed. Or you can end up, and I, and I know that people say, well, not me. You don't know. You, and if you've never been involved in any level of like a combat competitive sport, you really should, you really should get some experience with it. Because you will not, and you know, uh, there's a great YouTube channel called Active Self-Defense, totally worth watching. When you start to realize how quickly these things go down, it's it's incredibly quick how these things can go down from time to time. Um, and I've kind of already alluded to this, but avoid the three S's. The three S's are stupid places, stupid things, and stupid people. Most of what goes on in people's lives that involve a threat to body or life involve breaking the three S rule. Stupid places, stupid things, stupid people. And a lot of times it's all three. People go to stupid places and do stupid things with stupid people, especially young men. Most of the things in my life that happened to me or almost happened to me that were negative were things that never had to happen. Oh, when I was a young guy, I got into you know, quite a few fights here and there. I have to say... I've been in one fight in my life that there was probably no way to ignore, uh, to avoid. Where I didn't have a choice I could have made that would have just made the fight go away. <clears throat> and I don't know, maybe I could have said something to avoid. I, I can think of one that pretty much was like, okay, I guess we're going to do this. But every other physical conflict I ever had, I'm talking going like all the way back to grade school, I could have avoided it. Sometimes I didn't want to. You know, sometimes you got bravado, whatever. But if you can avoid a conflict, avoid the conflict is generally the best rule. And accept both the good and the bad realities about security. And what I mean by that is sometimes you can't create security beyond what you've done. There's a limit. Right? You also, like I said, if you, if you carry a gun, 
And you get in a conflict, there's a gun in the conflict. If you know how to use a gun, you know how to control yourself, you're willing to walk away, you're not a hothead, etc., the gun is almost always a net advantage. There's always a potential for it to become a disadvantage. Right? So we have to accept that there's limits. Next, let's talk about energy for a bit. With energy, the first step, in my opinion, is build a blackout kit that includes rechargeable batteries. Now, I didn't say a bug out kit, I said a blackout kit. A blackout kit is the basic things you need to know, that you need to be able to get your hands on, to get shit back to some sense of normalcy when the power goes out, specifically in the middle of the night. So, it's the middle of the night, you're taking a shower, your kid's in the other bathroom with Johnson's and Johnson's, but it's still in their eyes when the lights went out. And, you know, it's a kid that's old enough to take a shower alone, but it's your little daughter or son or whatever, eight years old, scared, soap in the face, water's cold now, totally dark, you're in the other bathroom, mom's down the hallway, other kid's in the bedroom. Ah! What do you do? Well, to me, the easiest thing to do is, number one, I put flashlights all over the freaking house. Good ones, cheap ones, whatever, flashlight. There's a flashlight sitting in almost every windowsill. Um, there's one just outside on the porch. There's one that's kept in the windowsill at, at the, the kitchen. There's one that I keep next to my bed. There are flashlights everywhere. Number two, get some backup lighting. The ones that are like little night lights, you plug them in a the wall, power goes off, they come on. Specifically hallways, main rooms, pantries, like that. Power goes out. Okay. At least I can see. I'm not going to bust my foot. I'm not going to fall over half naked getting out of the shower all wet. I got time. Kids got a nightlight in, in their bathroom. They can see. They don't have to cry. Even if they do, they're going to be okay. Get my clothes on, halfway dried off, worry about the screaming kid in the other bathroom, get them unscreaming, and... One way or another, there's enough lighting to go to wherever we keep the blackout kit. For us, our blackout kit is a canvas, you know, probably holds about five gallons worth of stuff. It's got additional flashlights, batteries, etc. in it. Uh, it's got the crank radio in it. All the stuff we need. Just it's, This is not every, it's not your generator, right? Your generator doesn't go in there. Your extension cords for your generator, if you have battery backup, you know, backup battery banks and extension cords and stuff like that. No, this is just the basic shit. Little LED lanterns, what have you. Okay, boom, now we're going to get that. There's the place is well lit enough. Nobody's going to bust their ass. And now we can implement things like generators and battery banks and stuff like that. Um, an inverter for the car would be a thing. That I would put your car inverter in your car. Because you're going to use it with your car. So you just keep it in the trunk or whatever. And what I always do for the, the inverters that I have for our vehicles, take a piece of you know scrap lumber and mount them to it. That way when you open the hood and set them there and you start plugging shit into them and all, they don't fall down into the fan belt and blow into pieces. right? So that would be another adjunctive thing you can do is a, a gener uh, sorry, uh, inverters for your vehicles. 
Because people that you get a generator, you have a $30,000, $40,000 generator in your pickup truck or your car sitting out in your driveway without an inverter, you can't use it. Now, there's limits to how much that can do. We won't get into that today, but that's a good thing. Definitely, I do believe everybody in America, in time, should have a decent generator. It just does too much. It does too much for too little. It's the number one prep that's paid off for us over and over again. We have a big generator and two cheap small generators. Two little 800-watt inverter generators made by a company called Dirty Hand Tools, and I have a big Troy built, 7,500 running watt Troy built. I think it's about 8,500 starting watts. It, it'll run our whole damn house. It really will. That, and if you don't have enough to do a whole house, kind of run your central air and all, get yourself a couple cheap window unit air conditioners. I mean, I just saw a bunch of them. I had to go to Walmart for some, $130 bucks. And you can easily, with kind of like a you know, 5,000, 6,000 watts or more generator, run a couple of those little window units, close off a couple rooms in your home, and you can keep those rooms comfortable and cool. And in certain times of year, in certain situations, that's a life and death issue. It really is. You start dealing with dehydration and exhaustion and all the stress goes. Having a climate-controlled area, um, I'm big on heating as well. Uh, and I think that a good propane heater and enough backup heat is your main way you can make sure that that's okay, or kerosene if you want to go that route, um, and store fuel. And I believe for gasoline, your minimum storage goal should be 12 five-gallon cans in rotation. That's 60 gallons. That's more than two ref complete refueling of vehicles for most people. Well more than that, but you know, even larger trucks and all, seldom do people uh, have more than 30 gallons of capacity in an empty tank. Um, so that's a lot of energy stored. I believe that it's the easy way to keep rotation going because there's 12 months in a year. Write numbers 1 through 12 on your cans. January comes, take a five-gallon can with the one on it, put it in one of your vehicles. If it's a Jerry can with a donkey dick, fine. If it's my, my favorite way to siphon fuel, I just talked about this. You get fuel line and a priming bulb for an outboard motor. You put the fuel line in the tank, you put the other fuel line down in the car, and you take the priming bulb, you pump it until the, the siphon starts, and it siphons the gas out of the can into the vehicle. You do that once every month, and then you take that can the next time you go to the, uh, to the gas station, and you fill the can, and you bring it back home. And you put it in the special for one. And then February comes and you do number two. And March you do number three. You will always have fuel. It's no more than a year old. You'll only be using one small amount of it at any given time. You always have 60 gallons on hand. Once you get it done, it, done, it, it costs money for the cans and the extra fuel. And once you're finished with that, it doesn't cost you any more money in March to dump that can and refill it than just to fill the car up. And, and it's the easiest Again, fundamentals, basics, way that I have for you. Next, health and sanitation. You need to have a way to dispose of and deal with waste. Down to, if, if this is all you got, you got some contractor-grade hefty bags, you got an extra toilet seat, you got a five-gallon bucket, and you got a couple bottles worth of the blue shit you use in chemical toilets. I don't like it. It's not my favorite choice, but it works. And it, it will get you through a short-term disaster, no problem, Some stinky bags sitting out there waiting for the sanitation people when the garbage service starts up again. 
Definitely you can deal with human waste by burying it. Humans have done it forever in a day. But you need to have a plan for it, and it needs to be something that will work where you live. It's not going to work here. I can't dig a deep enough hole for that to go for very long. But my wife and I have been looking more and more at a, another bug-out property, and she was asking me about, you know, can you just dig a hole? And, yeah, I'm like, yeah, you absolutely can. My, my, my dad grew up in a home where they used an outhouse until the late 60s. I think 66, I think, is when he said they put the... Um, the bathroom in for the house. Until 1966, they had an outhouse, and then they had like a, one of the tubs, like you see in old movies, like out in the one sh sh the shanty where they would heat water up with the coal stove and they would dump it in there. Like that was literally how he grew up. So it's not that long ago that a lot of Americans live that way. It's not how I want to live day to day. But one way or another, you got to have a plan to deal with human waste. And if you don't, it will cause disease, and it becomes your biggest threat. This is where we get into, it's not the disaster, it's the aftermath, where most of the problems happen. And a lot more people died, for instance, after the Haitian earthquake, of things like cholera and dehydration and other illnesses than they did from the earthquake knocking stuff down on top of people. Because if you give people a choice... Drink contaminated water or dehydrate sooner or later, they'll drink the contaminated water. So, have a way to deal with waste. Um, keep a good medical kit on hand at all times. And a 119 piece kit from Walmart that's 100 band aids and a few other things is not a good kit. And I, I think the best way to, like people say, well, what's a good med kit or whatever? Hey, you know, you can get great stuff from Doom and Bloom. Uh, that's Nurse Amy and, and Doc Bones' site. Uh, they do a great discount for members of the MSB, and it's a great way to get a kit. And if you get one of those kits, you're going to have the stuff that you need. But you need training as well, and getting the basic training for first aid, and kind of even like two tier two level medical response. What do you do when there is no doctor? That leads you to your kit. Because the kit without the knowledge isn't really great, and the knowledge without the kit isn't really great, but if you have the knowledge, you know what you need in the kit. And I'll tell you, there's if there's a place to train, it's here. We spent way more effort when I was in the military training for what to do when your buddy got shot than we did training on how to shoot somebody. Because there is a basic fundamental way to shoot somebody. <laughs> But when it comes to injury, every injury is unique and different. And it's when you get under lots of stress. So I even went through something called uh, combat lifesaver training. And, like, the final test in that was literally you came up to somebody, and they had them, like, covered with fake blood and shit. And then, like, there'd be a judge there judging the station that would tell you what you needed to know. Because, obviously, when you check for a pulse on somebody, they can't not have their heart beat. Because they have real people laying there, moaning, doing all kinds of weird shit. And so you found a pulse, you found, it's very, very weak, there is no pulse, whatever. Right? They'd tell you that. And they would be the guy scoring you. There was another judge or teacher, instructor, call what you want to at each station. And they would literally be screaming shit at you. You're doing it wrong! He's going to die! It's your fault! He's dying right now because of you! The guy's perfectly fine and the guy's screaming that at you. Or the guy actually is, you know... He's going to die. Sometimes it was like, this dude is dead. 
And you needed to leave him and go to the next guy. But they'd be screaming at you, how can you leave him? He's dying here. Rod, his mom will never see him again because shit like that. Well, they're throwing simunitions and shit too, right? I don't know that you need to go to that level. I'm just trying to drive home to you. That's how important it was to the military. That you're able to think when there's all kinds of bad shit happening and understand like, yes, that person was your brother soldier, but it wasn't your actual brother or your mom or your wife. It's very hard to deal with medical emergencies with people you care about. So having some level of training, you will default to your lowest level of training. And when you think about how low level our training is in basic first aid in this country, you realize what a risk we put ourselves in. And a risk we put the people we care the most about by not being trained. So get some good training on first aid procedures as well. Uh, develop a disaster time and procedures and protocols. So that means that what we need to do is we need to look at the way we live our life on a daily basis, and then we need to look, when things go to a certain level of bad, what are the things that we're going to do and how are we going to do them? Procedures are what you do, okay? Protocols are anchored to a situation, and we move to a specific type of procedure because we're under a certain kind of protocol. So... Day-to-day, -day, maybe we don't worry that much that somebody's going to break into our house or steal our stuff or what have you. Because, again, we can only be at such a, a state of awareness. If all the power's out in the neighborhood and we're getting reports of vandalism and theft, we're going to go to a different level of security protocol. Okay? And, I, again, this is turning into a longer show than I planned, so I won't go deeper. And I've done whole shows on just security and violence and, and that. But... You need to know what you're going to do, how you're going to do it, and when you're going to implement that. You need to have that thought out. You need to have essential prescriptions on hand and things like that. That's something we often overlook, but especially people that are diabetics, etc. Any kind of maintenance medication, minimum 60 days. If you talk to your doctor and they're not comfortable with you having 60 days of a medication that's a maintenance medication, you need a new doctor. Just bluntly, you need a new doctor. If you have to cheat a little bit to get it saved up, whatever you got to do, you got to have 60 days of anything that is a critical maintenance medication. And learn the most basic use of herbs and essential oils and things like that. I'm talking basic stuff like comfrey is good for abrasions. You know, um, peppermint oil is good for headaches. You'd be surprised at, especially like sinus headache, pressure headache, tension headache, uh, peppermint, and if, if peppermint doesn't work, lavender oil. Sinus congestion, peppermint oil is, and I don't mean peppermint scented oil, I mean peppermint essential oil. I've had days where you're just congested, you just can't breathe. You open up peppermint oil, each nostril a good sniff, maybe dab a little bit you know, on the mustache under there. It opens up those sinuses like instantly, completely not going to hurt you. Now, if you don't get it in your eyes or something, those essential oils are really powerful. They can really hurt your eyes. But, I mean, if you, if you use them as design, they're incredibly beneficial. Stress, lavender tends to be a very stress-relieving oil. Um, lots of herbs uh, can help with drawing salves and healing and things like that. Just the most basics. You don't have to become an herbalist. Uh, and you just keep going from there. You just keep going from there. If you build that fundamental, that's, that's the fundamental core that I just gave you. And, again, we should teach. We're not going to. So don't think this is some quest, right? Because I don't think we can fix the public ed system. But if the public ed system was worth 
an ever-loving F. This would be taught, you know, at a very, very low level in, like, grade school, a little bit higher level as we got into middle school, a little bit higher level in junior high, and there'd literally be a civil, civ, a civics project in your high school years to get all this done for yourself and your family. And you wouldn't graduate high school if, if the education system did 1% of what it claims. You wouldn't graduate high school without developing a mastery of the basics we talked about today. You wouldn't get a diploma. Do you know why? What do, we, what, do, what do I always say about school? It's preparing children to go out into the real world. No, it's not. If you didn't do this, then you weren't prepared for the real world. This is, this is basic life preparedness. This is basic non-brutal living 101. We don't give, I'm going to tell you straight up, as a society, we don't give a shit about our children. We don't care about them. We don't care about their safety and security as adults. We do not care. Or we teach this. If you're not teaching this to your children in your public education system, your public education system is nothing but a tool to control people. And that's what ours is. You've reasoned 5,911 that I'm for homeschooling. We do not care about our children as a society because we don't teach them this when we steal 13 years of their life supposedly giving an education and we barely cover 1% of what I did today. We don't care. I know you do. This is not a personal attack. As a society, we don't care about this. Because look what just happened. The biggest disruption in the lives of most people alive today in this 2020 pandemic, and we're still not teaching this. We're running around flapping our shit about mask or no mask, and we haven't even begun to, to talk to, 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 to our young people. Hey, see what can go wrong. Hey, this is why you need to make sure you have some food stored up so that everybody doesn't end up fighting for the last bag of beans in the grocery store when they don't even know how to cook dry beans. Which happened. We don't care. So you have to care. You have to care. Here's some other basics that I want to add on and not leave out. Cash. You should have carry cash and cash at home. You should keep... I, and I don't like to throw numbers out because different people have different levels of means, but in general, I think the average person at any time should be able to put their hands on at least 100 bucks, no matter where you go. Whether you stash some cash somewhere in a hidden compartment of your car, keep it in your clothing somewhere sep separate from your wallet. If you carry cash in your wallet, carry minimal cash in your wallet, carry the even if it's a separate pocket. You want my wallet? Here. You know what? And as soon as you're gone, assuming you get away without me beating the living shit out of you or shooting you, I'm going to call, I'm going to make a phone call, and every credit card in that wallet is useless to you. The driver's license is going to be useless to you. It's, it's nothing but a, but a pile of crap. And if you get ten bucks with it, you're lucky. And, you know, by not keeping your cash all in your wallet, you have that ability. Usually a guy trying to steal a wallet wants a wallet and wants to go. So keep that separated. And then keep significant, I'm not going to say how much, significantly more within your means available to you somehow in your home, hidden, 
and protected. If the house burns down, it's probably still going to be there. And if you get robbed, they're probably not going to find it. I'm a big fan of like fire safes for important things. And I'll tell you, maybe, maybe not this is the case. There might be a fire safe in my home that if you broke in would be the one you'd be most likely to find. It might be very, very heavy. It might take a lot of resources for you to carry it away, but you'd think you hit the jackpot and you don't have time to open it there, and then you might find that it's full of bricks. Just saying. And there might be some other ones that would be a lot harder to locate or maybe you have a floor safe or something like that. But but make sure you have, I would say, enough cash to do the basics of living for a month in physical cash that you can get your hands on. Um, insurance, keep it updated and meet with your insurance agent at least once a year. And go like write down things that changed in your life. Um, things that you have that are more valuable, etc. A lot of times, there's not even really much of a cost difference in covering more stuff in your home or increasing the total property value that you have covered in your home. You don't want to be overinsured where they're not going to pay the bill, but you don't want to be underinsured where you could have been for a couple bucks. So definitely you want to spend time with your insurance agent, and if your insurance agent is not useful, get a new insurance agent. Um, bank accounts. I think everybody should have two bank accounts, two separate banks. I could give you ten reasons. I'm not going to give you any. I'm just going to tell you, you should have two bank accounts. And I don't mean checking and savings at Bank A. I mean you should have a checking and savings account at Bank A and a checkings and savings account at Bank B. Because, you know, when Bank A decides to close your account or you can't get to your account or something's wrong with Bank A, you can probably get to Bank B. You don't have to have a ton of money in both of them. But having some in two separate accounts, two is one, one is none. Documentation. Build the documentation pack. If you just go to the survivalpodcast.com and type the word documentation in the, sub, uh, the search bar and hit enter, you will find my documentation show. I've done it as a rewind as well, commercial free. I've never changed it. I've never redone it. And the reason is I did that show in 2009, I believe, 2009. And a master sergeant with over 30 years in the Marine Corps came up to me right after I did that show at a public appearance and said, there's nothing you missed in that. It is perfection. It is the most important thing you've ever done. So I left it alone. But making sure you have all of the documentation that we talk about put together, and this includes things we talked about today, like where you'd go, how you would get there. Contact information for vendors, for family members, bank account number, all of it. I cover it all in the documentation show. Communications, a weather radio like I mentioned, battery radio, TV antenna. One of the most valuable things we've had when we've had power outages, we figured out that our cable box will not boot on the generator. I don't know why. I can't get it to. Our Uh, as long as it's not out for other reasons, our internet works, but my TV, um, the, the receiver boxes for the cable TV company will not boot up on our generator. And I've done it both with an inverter generator and a regular generator. It won't work. I don't know why. Now, I don't know if when our power's out, if maybe there's also power out to the cable. I don't know how they're grabbing their DC power. So this is more information than you need, but it's what's probably happening. At, probably at any time my house is without power, Wherever the hardline cable is drawing power from is also down. And I won't get into it. It just, there is some electricity when it comes to running cable television. And so that's probably why. But because of that, 
when we've wanted like weather information or whatever, local radio stations, pair of rabbit ears, turn the TV on, switch over to the rabbit ears. It's a, I know some people are like, I don't need TV. We're not talking about you know, binge-watching Netflix here. We're talking about what the hell's going on. And local news during a lot of these situations is maybe I don't trust the news for a lot of things, but when it's what the hell's going on during a power outage, in general, it's pretty decent information. Um, next up, cell phone battery packs. Or just That's something I don't understand when people don't have backup power for their cell phones. You know, we, we keep backup. We use the Anchor. Um, the, the Astro E7 is my favorite, but I'll use some other ones as well. But keeping one of those in a vehicle plugged in at all times, and then that way when you need power, there's power. Uh, it's great to have, and you should always have the ability to charge your phone every time you're in your vehicle. When you get in your vehicle, plug your phone in. Charge your phone. Uh, absolutely. However, there can be times during a power outage, like using your vehicle is not really convenient, And you need to have portable power, definitely. Uh, and then your basic 72-hour kit, and I say skip the tactical shit at first. So everybody wants to build a, a bug-out bag in this world. Men highly dominate prepping. Uh, they start putting together their 72-hour kit, and it's really a battle pack. I, I'm fine with some tactical components to it, etc., Uh, self-defense mechanisms, etc. But I'm I'm a big believer in carrying a gun anyway. So you have a that's a totally that's an EDC versus a 72-hour kit situation then. So maybe some backup ammo or whatever. But I mean initially your 72-hour kit is designed to keep you comfortable for three days. That's a bug out bag. Bug out bag is not a tactical bag to go fight the Red Dawn War. It's changes of clothing, it's food, it's water, etc. And I've done whole shows on that. Maybe we'll do another one again sometime soon. But have a 72-hour kit for every member of the family. And this is something that has been used extensively by my audience in situations we don't think of as typical emergencies. Going back to the very beginning of this episode where the thing that affects only you is more likely to happen. Number one use for a bug-out kit, a bug-out bag that I've heard from this audience. People actually used it. Somebody in the family ended up in the hospital. And you had to go there right away and be with them. And having that kit was the difference between being comfortable and not being comfortable. And that kit should include cash, like I said, for other needs for cash. Because you end up in the hospital, you know what? You're eating McDonald's because there's a McDonald's next to the cardiac ward, I understand. It's better than, than being hungry. It's better to be able to stay there until you get things worked out enough you can go resupply or whatever, go home, bring things back in, etc. And that's the and it's it's been, you know, one person. It was sad as hell, but his kid was like diagnosed at the doctor's office during some sort of a checkup with cancer, and it was one of these things like you'd go straight to the hospital. Another one was a guy whose wife was on the way home from work, and got in a serious car wreck. Got a phone call from a person who was in the vehicle with her. She wasn't even able to talk. He went straight to the hospital. He was on the way home, too. And I've had a dozen other stories that are similar. So definitely having that 72-hour cat. I really want to finish this up, though, with something I always say about this, and I don't think it gets through enough heads. If you won't help yourself, why would anybody else help you? The reason we don't do these things as a society It's because we're so damn spoiled. And we think, you know, if somebody has to come pull us off a roof, somebody will show up and pull us off a roof. And sooner or later, they will. 
But how long are you going to sit there and wait? How long can you sit there and wait? And this is not Disneyland, folks. Not everybody makes it. Not everybody survives. You know, we have this, this mentality that we've built Hollywood with where the, 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 the doctor always finds the cure right at the end, right? If you watch Dr. House or whatever. The, the emergency people always get to the person just in the nick of time. That's not how shit really works. People die waiting for help. And the people that want to help you, the, the, when, you when I ask that question, why would anybody else help you? Because people do. But here's how this works. When there's a big disaster and the, the troops come, first of all, until the wind stops blowing or the fire stops burning, unless you're the direct firefighter or whatever, nobody shows up. When the tornado's ripping through town, everybody hunkers down and waits. Okay? Now, if it's a big enough disaster where it's not like a neighborhood, it's a big regional disaster, etc., then... Your initial first responders do what they can, where they can, as they can, and they are completely overwhelmed. So then the, 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 the troops come, FEMA, etc. comes. And the first thing that happens is you get an incident commander appointed. And the first thing they do is they set up ops. You know what's happening to you while they're setting up ops? Whatever's happening to you is happening to you. Okay? They set up ops and they begin to coordinate and they do an assessment of the disaster. Who needs us the most, where are they, and how can we get to them? And they operate under the primary credo of dead rescuers save no lives. So my first duty as an incident commander or anybody that's you know reporting to them in any level of the hierarchy is, I don't want to lose my people. It is more important to me that I don't get this person killed than I save this person that's over there. That's reality. And in general, in a really big disaster, before meaningful relief begins, is about 72 hours after the wind stops blowing. It takes that long. And if you're not considered to be at the top of the priority list, you might wait a lot longer. Including if you're in a really bad way, but over here I've got 5,000 people in a really bad way, and over here I've got 50 people in a bad way. I'm sorry, 50 people come second. I can do more good here. I only have so many resources. This is effing reality. This is why I'm saying we don't care about our children. We don't care about how they grow into young adults. We don't care about preparing them for life. Because the fact that they get through 13 years of schooling and no one tells them this, when this is the most fundamental reality of the human existence, we don't care. That's how it works. So it's not that no one cares. It's that... No one cares as much about you as they care about themselves. I am going to take care of my family first, my neighbors second, the people down the road third, the people downtown fourth, the people in the next city over fifth, the people in the next, the rest of the state sixth, the next state over seventh. Why? Because that's what I can do. Because that's the order in which I can do things. And when you get an incident commander setting up a response force for a Superstorm Sandy, this is what they do. Not because they hate you, but because this is the only way to do things in an organized fashion that keeps my, keeps my responders alive and prioritizes people based on where we can do the most good the fastest. And most of the time, the majority of people end up completely on their own. 
for most of the period of time, sometimes forever. They get themselves out. There was a flood here that happened a number of years ago, maybe seven, eight years ago now. And there was a low-lying area with some uh, mobile homes. And these mobile homes literally got floated off their, their foundations. And there was a lady that they played a soundbite of over and over again to advertise the news and how important the news is, even though the news did absolutely nothing to help these people. And she kept screaming, no one came and got us out. We had to get ourselves out. And she was saying it. Now, understand she was panicked and she just went through a traumatic experience. But she was saying it very indignantly, as though someone should have come. Well, no one was coming. You live in a low-lying area in a mobile home, and there's a, a, a flash flood warning. Maybe the media did help, and you didn't pay attention. Of course no one came and got you out. Nature doesn't give a shit about your feelings. That's why these fundamentals are important. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Uh, I want to remind you guys, if you like the show and the work that we do, one of the ways you can help support us, do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. And today, the item of the day is the same as the item of the day was last week. Uh, I just ordered four packages of them for myself. I can't believe they're still on sale. Uh, it's the Rapid Rooter uh, Grow Plugs. Man, at nine bucks a bag, these things are stupid cheap. And if you want to do any kind of plant starting for the fall, hydroponics, aquaponics, etc., these are the things you want to use. And like I said before, you can reuse them. I use mine four or five times before they finally kind of like really start to break down and I just throw them in the compost pile. Uh, mainly I throw them on top of my ebb and flow beds. I let the worms clean them off. And I probably have some I've used more than five times now. But at nine bucks a bag, I bought four bags today. You know why? They never go bad. That's a stupid cheap price, and they do go out of stock. So right now with the everything short is going on, when you have something at 50% off that doesn't go bad, stock up on it, guys. Check these things out. Again, general hydroponics, rapid rooter glow plugs. But as always, you can help support us doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. Next up, MSB is on sale. 30 bucks a year. 30 bucks a year? For the MSB. Now, guys, that is stupid cheap. I normally say the MSB costs 18 cents an episode. I'm not going to do the math. I think it's like 11. One time I said just, you know, anybody out there that's an MSB member, back in the envelope, email me. Let me know how much you think MSB saves you every year. The average number is about $150. Bucks. $50 membership saves the average person $150 a year. I mean, there's seeds. There's medical products. There's tons of discounts. Just tons of discounts. And the MSB is on sale right now for $30 a year. If you've never signed up before, now's the time to do it. Discount code, all like it's all one word, except the number 30 is 30. You don't have to spell out 30. Give me 30. That's the discount code to use when you sign up. Give me 30. 30 bucks a year, and it does apply to recurring. If you're an existing member... No, you can't get the sale price. And the reason you can't get the sale price is the software won't let me set it up to let you renew early. I'm, I'm not AT&T. I'm not trying to rip you off. I just, it, it doesn't work. If it worked, I'd let you renew early and switch over to the new rate. But the way it's set up right now, if I let you do it, there is a way to do it. But if I do it, your existing account does not cancel. You create a new rebuild date and you get double billed and then you're angry with me and you say nasty words to me. That's why you can't do it. But there's over 70 discounts on stuff you'll likely buy anyway, and five of these are already cleaned. I'm doing 10 lifetime memberships. 
250 bucks. I, I did a count today. There's less than 200 lifetime members in the MSB. That's how you know, I've been selling it for 12 years, and I've sold a little bit less than 200 lifetime memberships. There's 10 available right now. The catch is you got to pay with cryptocurrency. 250 bucks, five are claimed, so five are available. Uh, you email me for that one to do it. TSPC lifetime in the subject line. Tell me your name. The username you have or want, if you're a new customer, and the crypto you want to pay with, and when the 10 are gone, they're gone. I'm only doing 10, and it has to be cryptocurrency, and I'm discounting it to 250 to take crypto, because I think now's a good time to be taking some crypto. Um, anyway, everybody else, 30 bucks a year for life, as long as you stay a member, on a great deal at the regular price anyway. Okay, time for our song of the day today. I'm making good of my threat that I made last week. I said, why don't I do another Jimmy Buffett week and do Jimmy Buffett music that most of you, 99% of you, have never heard, and most of you probably wouldn't even realize it's Jimmy Buffett if you heard the song come on the radio. This is an old one. This goes back all the way to 1971. It's called Ace. And this song is about a homeless black man that grew up in the South, and some of his life just sucks because it does, and some of it's because he's made some bad decisions. And the interesting thing about this song, and the time frame it comes from, and the artist that it comes from, is that it does point out this problem, but it doesn't blame anybody. It doesn't blame Ace, even though it does acknowledge that some of it is his own making. It doesn't blame you. It doesn't blame me. It doesn't blame society as a whole. But it does say, hey, look, here's a person. This is a real person with a real life and a real story and a real bad situation. Maybe you should pay attention. And then it leaves it to you to figure out what to do about it. This is also a root song and that it will become another very famous song down the road. Now, the song it will become that this will this will turn into is one that, you know, still people that like know Buffett would even know. Like but a lot of people wouldn't. People that know Margaritaville and stuff wouldn't know this song. But he went to Paris. This is the this is where this anchored he went to Paris, you know, when you listen to that song, it sounds like it might be like about Ernest Hemingway or something like that. But when you listen to Buffett talk about where he went to Paris came, came from, it came from the, the combined stories of two winos. One he met in New Orleans, and I don't remember where he said he met the other one. But when, when I know that, and I listen to the song, you know, I kind of see this root in this mindset of that the people that we ignore often not only have their own stories, but they have fascinating stories that we can learn from. Anyway, I'm going to say that most of you, when you hear the song, be like, I had no idea that this song even existed, let alone Jimmy Buffett did it. With that, i Jack Spierko with another episode of the Survival Podcast. Seems a long time, just a minute of the day. But the man who stood beside me more than gave himself away. The food stain on his spotted shirt, the gray beard on his face. 
A man composed of many names, so I just called him Ace. But Ace can't read and Ace can't write, and he sleeps on a bench at night. A little man the world has left behind. He ain't bitter, he ain't sweet, makes his living on the street. Never knowing what he's gonna find. Born in Mississippi, picking cotton as a child. Left soon for the city, where he heard that life was wild. That was fifty years ago, and nothing's really strange. From a poor dirt farm to dirty streets is really not much change. And Ace can't read, and Ace can't write. He sleeps on a bench at night. A little man, the world is left behind. He ain't bitter, he ain't sweet. Makes his living on the street, never knowing what he's gonna find. Left poor Ace behind. 